here we are. Happy hour. Happy hour. It's exciting. Uh, there we are. Okay. Ready? I think so. All right. Mm-hmm. I know it's going to be that kind of day. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this week we are talking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser. Hey Emily. Hi Olga, nice to see you. It's good to see you too, and I we just have to give a little uh, word of warning to our listeners today. Um Emily's having some work done at her house or something, and it makes lots of noise. It's very noisy, Um, so it might add some excitement, (laughs) hoping that um, at the end of it, the scaffolding that's been on the back of my house for the last four years will be done. So who knows? We'll see. You'll have a whole new view, a whole new way to see the world. Uh, We also, in my neighborhood, they are doing some work across the street as well. So you have been warned there may be crash, bang, boom in the background. Um, we are going to talk about hazard pay and the uh, COVID-19 pandemic in a moment. But before we do, Emily, I just want to revisit something from last week's week's conversation with Stephanie Yu from the Public Assets Institute. You know, at the end of the conversation, I had brought up the state's or the Joint Fiscal Office's basic need budget. And and how it feels like such a disconnect for me that quite often what the state says is a basic needs budget and kind of a basic hourly wage people need to meet their, you know, housing, health insurance, uh, clothing, and food needs, and and put some money in savings. Mm -hmm. Um, How it feels like such a disconnect that the state says one number and what a lot of people earn is not the same thing. And... To me, that's a symbol that the system isn't working. And Stephanie brought up um, the kind of the the thought of, well, there's the system and then there's people's uh, personal choices. And I just wanted to dig into that a little bit um, because, yes, she's right. There's the system and then there's there's the economic system and then there's people's personal choices. Um you can choose to take a job that doesn't pay as much for some reasons mm-hmm. than jobs that do pay more. For example, as someone who works in media and communications, if I was a PR person, mm-hmm. I would make more money mm-hmm. than I do as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think we need to keep in mind is when I remember when I first came across the JFO's budget, basic needs budget it's probably like 2016 and I just did a very unscientific search of jobs that Mm -hmm. were available in our area and most of the ones that I came across on all the job searching ads did not pay what the JFO said we should make and so I just but if I looked at jobs in like Massachusetts Mm -hmm. and New Hampshire yes there started to be better paying jobs. And I just think we should keep that in mind when we talk about wages that yes, there are personal decisions that people make, but there are definitely things around wages in Vermont that are not working. Absolutely. And I see my memory of when Stephanie was talking about personal choices was actually, she was talking about the choices that people make with their spending when they are making over and above living wages. Ah, so okay. in the context about people's capacity to be taxed mm-hmm. and it was about um, and people's sense of enough and what sort of happens when people are making above and beyond a living wage budget and paying sort of their basic needs bills, the people sort of lived experience of um, their taxable capacity after that mm-hmm. and that that's sort of where she was saying some of the personal choices happen. Um, that is so interesting because that's not what I heard. What I heard was so often when I bring this issue up, it reminds me, I think in Vermont, how we've gotten used to keeping a low bar because when mm -hmm. I bring this issue up, so many people are like, nobody's going to make that much money. Like, so why do we even bother asking the question? 
Mm. And and if someone's not making enough money, it's probably just, you know, they, they chose to buy an iPhone instead. Mm-hmm. You know, those kind of yeah. like, row, and not that I think Stephanie thinks that way, but that's mm-hmm. what I heard. Um, and I, I just find that so fascinating how when we talk about economics, that while yes, there is that personal component with the decisions we make, we so often... I don't know. I do. I just think in Vermont, when it comes around jobs and wages, we have just gotten used to a really low bar. And I think some of that is structural. So I think the bulk of that is structural. Um, But we make choices about the structures that we live in. So um, Vermont really prioritizes our small business environment and the values that we think small businesses hold. and we have sort of stories about that being more family centric or um, more flexible or the money being sort of closer to the communities that it's um, where profits come from or the profits being returned to communities more likely or a um, bunch of things like that or that some sort of magical spirit of entrepreneurship that we talked about with Matt Dunn. Um, but it, there's also trade-offs there around um, the cost of health insurance, um, the, co- the ability to provide um, real family medical leave or vacation time that are much harder in a small business environment because they're a more costly thing to do on a small scale. And so that becomes, um, so I think that's a choice that we're making as communities, not a choice Mm. that we're making individually. And I think there are mechanisms, um, to remedy that, that would lead to higher wages. So, which we've talked about, you know, um, so one choice that we could make, given the choice that we've already made as a community, we've chosen to really value small businesses. And what we could do as a next step from that choice um, would be to then acknowledge the challenges that small businesses have mm-hmm. and create systems to lower their costs and have more of that money go towards wages like universal healthcare or a universal family medical leave system to, you know, given us when you're at a very small scale, the value of um, having something be part of the collective good is much higher. Mm -hmm. So those are just sort of some ideas that I have about choices that we could make as a community um, to compensate for the other choices that we make as a community so that people's individual choices can be wider because they have more dollars in their pockets. Fantastic. Interesting. But no, I don't think that like anyone deserves to be poor because they want to be a journalist rather than a PR person. (laughs) Right. Well, this brings us into the, the hazard pay. Um, Wait, can I add one more thing about choices, which I think is very Wyndham County. So we do have people in Wyndham County who I think take up a lot of our collective imagination, but maybe are not that, much the majority of people Ooh, that are we have talking chosen. about stories versus like facts here i think we are <laughs> oh cool so and there's you know there's some real people like this people who have chosen to live in vermont um making much less money than they would somewhere else they came here with a certain degree of financial privilege and so they are choosing to be sort of homesteading um dropping out of the rat race you know, homeschooling, whatever it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And we have multiple generations of folks who have done this. Right. And that is, um, that is sort of poverty by choice. Um, But it's poverty with a lot of financial cushion all around it. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, that's being low income, but that's not being poor, I think. And I think that conversation gets like really mixed up in Wyndham County when we talk about um, other challenges Mm -hmm. for people's lives. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because um, I don't, I'm so sorry, I cannot remember the, the person who said this to me, so I can't give her proper credit, but I think she was right. Um, when, when we talk about income and we talk about things like poverty um, or being low income, what they can really mean is what access do we have to resources? So like, you know, you can be low income and struggle in that vein, but still have a lot of like social capital and a really strong family and friend network, which can offset, you know, income in a different way. Or you could be like what you were just, the example you just gave that someone has chosen a certain job or a certain income, but they have a lot of backup resources, financial resources. Um, 
But then there are some people who they don't have much income. They don't have a strong social network. They don't have other resources to access at all. And I think we forget that when we talk about income, what we really should be saying is resources. Mm -hmm. And people have, there are a lot of folks in our community that have very strong social networks, but those social networks don't necessarily have a lot of financial resources. And so they're very available to help, but the dollars connected to that aren't there. And so that's another sort of um, access to capital issue. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. so this brings us to that the interesting conversation of hazard pay, I think. Um, and Emily, in a minute, can give us a little more detail on the, the two bills that are running through the legislature right now around hazard pay. But what's interesting for me right now are two things around this discussion of hazard pay and equity. First is, because we haven't all been ex- um, impacted by COVID in the same way, how does the legislature on a broad scale kind of ensure some kind of equity in the hazard pay? But also what I'm just curious about is, you know, so many Vermonters work more than one job. And so how do we consider the people who maybe on paper look like they have a full-time job with a full-time income and they didn't lose that during COVID, but maybe they had two or three side jobs that just floated them, but they lost those. You know, it's like, I, I, I'm really curious about that, Emily. I hope we can dive into that a little bit. Um, you know, and I've been thinking about, it's a big question. Um, I'm not sure I, like I have the- very much for that. So I'm a little, it's, we're gonna get like too, really deep into unemployment insurance law there. Um, but what I think, you know, I've heard a few people use this metaphor of, you know, COVID is the storm and we're all having the same storm, but we're all experiencing it from like very different boats, right? Mm-hmm. So some of us are drowning and some of us are getting seasick and, you know, some of us are just enjoying the view. Um, and there's that awesome banging. <laughs> Don't know how loud it is for you. Makes it harder for me to think. Um, so when I think about people's resilience with regards to weathering um, some of the impacts of the pandemic, mm-hmm. we have all of these folks who have continued to return to work every day, some because they believe deeply in what they do, and many more because they have no choice. This is their income. Right. Um, and they didn't feel uh, perhaps enough trust in government or perhaps their unemployment insurance wouldn't have been high enough to um, step out of work for their own personal safety and know that their needs were still gonna be met. So we have a lot of people who um, didn't necessarily consent to putting their lives on the line and being an essential worker, um, but did it because they felt they had no choice. And when I think about those folks and what it means to support them as they weather the pandemic, um, some of that is making sure that their workers' rights are protected. knowing that they'll have workers' comp if they get sick, um, knowing that proper PPE is supplied and that we are really um, being clear with employers about the need to protect employees in that way. But also when we think about the money that's being spent to um, help weather this economic catastrophe, um, a lot of it is going to business owners and much less of it is going to the people on the ground Mm -hmm. um, who in study after study after study, we see that if money goes directly into the hands of, you know, folks who make even less than a hundred thousand dollars a year, um, that sort of immediately gets spent and recirculated in the economy. Whereas when money goes to a business, it might sit there for whatever reason and not be recirculated or go out of state more easily. Um, And so these two bills are, um, pieces of our response to the pandemic that really get hands directly get money directly in the hands of Vermonters. So one of them is an expansion of hazard pay to um, more workers and sort of new categories of workers. And the second one is um, an economic stimulus equity package that takes um, the $1,200 the idea of the $1,200 that many of us got from the federal government mm-hmm. um, 
federal stimulus payment. One of, um, in my household, one was a direct deposit. And then the other one was a um, credit card with like a huge American flag on it. And, you know, everyone's letters were signed by the president. Um, yeah. It was I didn't get a letter from the president. You didn't? No, I got a check though, which is more what I cared about. Yeah, that's really funny. Okay, so everyone, you know, we all got it. We all got our payments in different ways. Um, not clear how, which makes me nervous. But anyway, so many of us got these payments. And then a lot of Vermonters who don't have social security numbers or who are married to people or partnered with people who don't have social security numbers did not get this payment, even though they've been paying taxes. Right. Um, and many of them have been working. So, um, so a lot of that, I mean, working through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so that is um, undocumented farm workers, um, that is green card holders, that is a whole like big range of folks who live in Vermont and really could have benefited from this um, economic stimulus check mm -hmm. in order to weather the storm of COVID. Because what we've talked about before, um, and I think we talked about this with Stephanie and maybe with one other listener, um, maybe with Matt Dunn, mm -hmm. about how the impacts of the economic, um, the economic impacts of the pandemic are being really um, postponed through a number of things. And one of them was that $1,200, right? So there was the $1,200. There was the fact that it happened at the same time that tax returns usually happen. And so lower income people had that boost. There was the extra money coming in through unemployment insurance. There was the fact that it was sort of spring and summer, which is a less expensive time for Vermonters. Um, you're not putting on snow tires, you're not buying oil. And so all of those things really helped us postpone um, what I believe is sort of ine inevitably going to be a significant struggle um, mm. in our communities. And so this economic stimulus equity payment that's going to um, undocumented workers and other legal permanent citizens and residents um, is a way of sort of helping to weather that storm um, mm. and post or postponing the impacts of the storm. And so those are the two bills. Um, the economic stimulus equity just passed the House and got passed over the Senate. And the hazard pay bill um, that expands hazard pay to more workers left, got voted out of the Senate and is now in the House. And I just want to remind listeners that the hazard pay bill, there was a form of hazard pay that was passed earlier this year in case anyone's sitting there going, wait a minute, didn't we do this already? Mm -hmm. um, but it covered um, only a few categories of, of workers, mostly healthcare frontline workers. And this yeah. second one is, is covering more job types. And a lot of that is because when we received this billion dollars from the federal government through the CARES Act, the rules on how it could be spent were not fully spelled out to the state. And so it's been a real process of back and forth and negotiating between our legislative council and between the feds, between our legislative delegation, um, acting on our behalf, seeing what other states are getting away with and then doing it. Because if you spend it wrong, mm -hmm. um, sort of against the regulations, then it gets clawed back, which is um, a really terrible process and very expensive. We don't want that. So we have gotten new guidance since the last hazard pay bill passed. That one had to have, um, there's this word nexus that's used in legislation all the time, um, but it just means like touching something. Okay. So um, the first hazard pay bill, someone, basically all of the categories of folks who are eligible for it had to have a very increased chance of touching someone who was COVID positive, basically. Oh, okay. And so that's why it was healthcare workers. It's like people who work in hospitals or nursing homes with people who have likely, you know, who are likely to actually touch someone who is sick. Okay. When we think about um, early care and education workers or um, grocery store workers, which were sort of the two biggest categories that I heard from people like, are you kidding me? They were in incredibly hazardous positions. Yeah. Um, yes, they were in incredibly hazardous positions because they were in repeated, regular, intimate contact with a large swath of people. 
but there was no, um, those people weren't more likely to be sick than anyone else in the population. And so that's why originally we thought that they didn't have a close enough nexus to COVID. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. Okay. Um, and so now we've expanded, the Senate expanded, um, and this passed on Tuesday through the Senate, um, expanded it to grocery store workers, um, pharmacy workers. Um, a retail establishment provided that that retail establishment was open during to the general public during that like first two months of the pandemic mm-hmm. before we really like had a clear sense of what safety looked like. Right. Um, a wholesale dis- distributor making deliveries to those retailers because we've seen, you know, I don't know about you, but that was one thing that I really noticed in those early months was like all of the people that were still going in and out of all of these places. Um, trash collection or waste management service, child care facilities, um, voc rehab service provider. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of like, you know, nursing home, near a nursing home, funeral establishments or crematoriums. Um, yeah. And then the last one is that um, anyone that provides security services to any of the other covered employers. Okay, interesting. Because those are usually contracted services, but they would still be sort of on those sites right. that we are now seeing as increased risk locations. And remind us this hazard pay, it's um, almost like that expanded unemployment mm-hmm. benefit. So it's an extra yeah. paycheck on top of what you might be getting from your employer. Exactly. And it's just for um, sort of the two months right at the beginning of the pandemic when everything was shut down and then we still had some people that were going to work. Um, It's to really honor those people and the extra time that they had to spend with their protective equipment and the extra um, risk that they took to themselves in order to keep us all fed and healthy and safe and also um, so that they could pay their own bills. Yes. Yeah. And so there's still debate about whether or not there's going to be an income cap. Okay. Um, the previous Howard pay bill capped income, I think, and I, I don't have this in front of me, so I'm sorry. I think it was $25 an hour, mm-hmm. um, but it might've been 20. Okay. Um, and there's some debate in the house about whether or not we're going to um, change that cap or not. Interesting. Uh, we we have to go to break, but before we do, I'm just curious, what's some of the thought behind capping that, having a cap or not having a cap on the income? Um, so part of it is um, what I was saying about some people didn't have um, the economic freedom to not be working. Mm-hmm. And that's a way of sort of differentiating those folks. Um, some of it is that... Um, you know, being a doctor fits in here um, if we don't have an income cap. And so is that necessarily the best use of federal funds to add a very small increase to a very, you know, it becomes um, an exponentially less impactful payment as you go up a salary scale, right? Um, So it's sort of the opposite of a progressive thing. Um, Gotcha. Does that make sense? So it like, it, it won't be a meaningful amount of money to a doctor, even though it'd be a very meaningful amount of money to a licensed nurse assistant. Mm-hmm. And so why don't we spend the money where it can be meaningful? Right. Fantastic. Thank you for that yeah. explanation. We're going to head to break, um, but the Montpelier Happy Hour will return on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station in a moment. WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. As always, we are talking about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County and the views and opinions, Emily, are ours and nobody else's, especially not the radio stations. Remember that. Don't forget that. Always. Always. Mm-hmm. Um, we, If you're just joining us, a couple of, of heads up. Both Emily and I outside our homes are having some uh, work done. So you may hear crash, bang, boom. You have been warned. Um, The other thing is we are talking about hazard pay and the Vermont Coronavirus Economic Stimulus Equity Program. So uh, yes, H968 for any of those 
nerdy folks out there who like to to Google these types of things. You and the hazard it. pay bill we were talking about before the break is S353. S353. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Emily, I know that this economic stimulus equity program is supposed to help folks who were bypassed by the federal stimulus, the, the $1,200 uh, stimulus check. But I'm curious, because some of these folks are undocumented workers. Some of them might be green card holders. But I'm really curious, if someone is an undocumented worker, how can they even be identified for this program to get the money in the first place? So um, probably about um, a little more than half of the people that we are expecting um, to be covered by this are undocumented workers. And so... For the most part, those are folks who are paying, and I am going to add another caveat to our previous caveat. I am very far from an expert on immigration law and and employment law related to immigration law. This is all fairly new information for me. I have um, cheat sheet that I was really interested to learn about and learn more about. Um, And then I have my own experiences working in actually other cities um, in restaurants with undocumented folks and so hearing about their lives from them. And so that is my expertise with this is sort of collaborating with Migrant Justice, which is a Vermont organization, mm-hmm. and then um, personal experiences outside of Vermont. So no legal get, advice. Uh, I have here. no idea fairly quickly. But <laughs> um, most undocumented workers in Vermont pay taxes. Um, on their wages because their employer pays those for them. There's a wide variety of ways that people sort of wind up in that employed situation, that uh, employed undocumented situation um, that we're not going to get into here. But to say that they their employers are still paying taxes on their behalf and they are not then collecting those tax returns, even though they often qualify. Okay. When we think about the shape of the Vermont economy in relationship to undocumented workers. About half of the undocumented workers in Vermont um, work in the dairy sector. Mm-hmm. And those are folks, um, and then a lot more sort of in the agricultural sector, but not the dairy sector. Um, I just want to be clear, I do understand that dairy is part of agriculture. I'm just getting, the dairy is the largest segment of the agriculture mm-hmm. sector, because now we're getting into both farming and migrant labor, two things that are very com- complicated. complicated. Yes. yes. So, um, a lot. Most of those folks continued going to work every day mm-hmm. during this time, um, and they were working in close quarters, often living in close quarters with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't just like not go milk a cow one day, right? Yeah, the cow will be. Very the cow happy. wants to be milked, whether there's a pandemic going on or not. Yeah. So. Um, we have a lot of people who are sort of at increased risk, um, really holding together our farms and the basis of Vermont's economy during this time. Um, These are folks who have lived in Vermont for a while. They have kids in schools, um, members of their community. Um, So it's about a thousand children that we're talking about that are children of these folks. Um, There's a whole category of people that if you were married to someone who, or, partnered with someone who didn't have a social security number, you are not eligible and your child is not eligible. Mm. Um, so that's sort of your child. So that's an interesting piece of it. Um, so, so wait, just to clarify, what if you have a social security number, you're married to someone who doesn't, does that disqualify both of you or? It disqualifies your child. Okay. Interesting. Um, so we're talking about a, about a thousand children, Vermont okay. children. Um, And then there's a whole collection of folks who have, um, who are here with green cards or um, sort of other visas and don't have social security numbers. I've talked to a few constituents in Brattleboro who are just sort of like midway through the process and didn't have a social security number yet at the time um, that this happened, Mm -hmm. who also did not receive those payments. And these are often folks who are, um, you know, raising families here, have been living here for 20 years. Um, 
becoming a citizen is an incredibly um, strenuous, expensive, mm -hmm. and difficult process. And not a fast process either. No, incredibly slow, mm -hmm. incredibly slow. Um, and so people might have applied years and years ago and still be working their way through the paperwork. Yeah. And so those are, um, those are sort of the categories of folks that we're talking about. So there is something called um, an ITIN. It's an individual taxpayer identification number. Mm -hmm. um, and it's issued by the IRS to individuals who are required to have a US taxpayer, taxpayer identification number to pay taxes, but who do not have and are not eligible for a social security number. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and they don't serve any purpose other than federal tax reporting. And so those folks weren't eligible. And so it's easier to find those folks, right? They're like okay. part of our system. Um, the other way that we're likely to be um, getting people connected to this is through organization, advocacy organizations like Migrant Justice. Mm -hmm. um, and people might know Migrant Justice from their Milk with Dignity campaign that's been going on for a while. Um, they've been sort of working with Hannaford's and Ben and Jerry's and Cabot to try to um, improve the conditions for folks working on dairy farms. Um, and so really helping people just know it's there and come apply for it. Um, one challenge that everyone's sort of foreseeing and nervous about this process is it's a really scary time to, to be, be an undocumented. Yeah, it's a really scary time to even be a documented immigrant in America. Mm -hmm. um, and Vermont is not immune from the significant white supremacy action that's been happening elsewhere in the country. We have ICE agents that operate throughout the state of Vermont. We have um, cohorts of white supremacist, um, like emergent militias. We have folks that are coming to Black Lives Matter rallies with, you know, automatic weapons. We, you know, this is happening here the same way it's happening everywhere else mm -hmm. in the country. And people are scared here the same way they are everywhere else in the country. And it's probably, from what I've heard from people, even more scary here than it is in some other parts of the country, because if your skin's not white, you stand out a lot more. Right. So all of those things together, um, we are really hoping and looking to make sure that we are protecting um, the data of the folks who are applying. But Vermont does not have the best track history track record with this. So we know that when we did this really fabulous progressive piece of legislation with the driver ID cards, right. um, when was that? Like four years ago? Six years ago? Time. Oh. Time was part before the COVID and now it's anyway, yeah. um, which was a great thing. It was sort of making sure that folks who are undocumented can get driver's licenses. Really exciting. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we were really proud of that and doing that work, but it turns out that it was essentially like, there was two things that happened. One, we essentially created a registry of undocumented immigrants that were, um, was sent off to ICE a few times by just like random people working at the DMV who felt like they should take it into their own hands. Um, and somehow that data wasn't well protected enough that they weren't able to do that, that they were able to do that. And then the second thing that happened is because um, we connected that information to another piece of information, which is voting registration. Hmm. We had a bunch of foot migrant workers, undocumented folks who, um, and not all undocumented folks are migrant workers. I don't wanna equate right. those people. Um, Right. But we had a lot of undocumented folks who were registered to vote, who didn't want to be registered to vote, who knew that they weren't eligible to vote, but because it was an automatic DMV process, they, um, fraud was basically committed for them. Mm -hmm. And that had really significant blowback. Yeah. Um, and as both of those things have now been fixed, but I really understand um, anyone having any hesitancy to step up and say, yes, I deserve this money. I'm a Vermonter. I've been paying taxes um, in sort of the environment that we're operating on mm -hmm. and in. And so I'm really hoping that the deep collaborations with Migrant Justice, which is a trusted organization, um, can help folks feel like they have a right to this money that is 
theirs as Vermonters. Is it possible to, and I, you know, I say this not knowing some of the strings that are attached to this federal funding. Um, is it possible to give a lump sum to some of these organizations and have them disseminate or? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I know that was part of the debate at one point and it wasn't clear to us um, if that was going to be work within the um, CARES Act restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm looking forward to finding out more about that um, as we move towards implementation. Okay. I know that's something that New York State has tried a little bit um, to sort of issue larger checks to immigration lawyers and then have immigration lawyers um, sort of dispense cash as they see fit. Um, I'm not sure Vermont has the infrastructure for like the community-based infrastructure for that in the same way. Mm. You know, it's so complicated because we're trying to provide some sort of equity, mm-hmm. but you know, on a large scale, you know, one of the, the, I don't, I'm going to use best for the lack of a better term. One of the best ways to provide equity is to make every sure everything is transparent and everything is pretty well, like people have good guidance and things are structured really well. Um, But we're dealing with a system that is not transparent, that is not structured well, that is Mm -hmm. already broken um, I guess this is my long way of saying, boy, I'm glad I'm not the one who has to figure that out. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I mean, there's like the existential question that I wrestle with every day, which is how do you create justice within a deeply unjust system? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that that's a question that's caused many people to say you can't and, you know, be on the outside of the system. And I'm still holding on to um, shreds of hope that it's possible and fighting for that every day, along with some great colleagues. But it's also, you know, more specifically in the context of this COVID relief funds, and we've talked about this a little bit before, mm-hmm. even when we're debating these issues in the House, in committee, um, we're hyper aware that if we're trying to create, we're not all hyper aware. Some of us are hyper aware that if we're trying to create a workaround, that's not the kind of thing that you want to say, like, on the record to your legislative council, because mm-hmm. that's proof to the feds that you're creating a workaround instead of, you know, going in with um, best intentions. And so that's a, that's a funny piece of all this. I'm going to mute because things just got really loud. So maybe you can say something. I will try to say something intelligent while, while the work is going on. Um, well, actually, I do. I want to kind of tease out what you were just saying about working with in, inside the system or outside the system when the system is broken. You know, I think there is value to standing outside the system and throwing stones. I mean, to a certain extent, that is a little bit how journalism has been set up, that we are supposed to be kind of back at, at the back row witnessing history and then pointing out where where things are working or not working and and those type of things so journalists are a little bit supposed to be on the outside throwing stones um and so there is a place for that but to be honest i'm not sure you can truly you you need both you need people inside the system too because one of the dangers about tearing down an, um, an existing system, I feel, is unless you're really clear about what's going to replace it, you risk creating a vacuum. And in that vacuum, those with very nefarious intentions can, can hijack things. Um, and, and so I, I think it's such a balancing act, but I think you need both. So it's not even about holding on to shreds of hope that you can make change within the system. If you want to make change, someone's got to be inside the system because someone has to unlock the door from the inside. I agree. And I, you know, Oh um, good. I was hoping that the noise had stopped in the background that you could jump in there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The, you know, when I think about journalism today, um, especially sort of outside of Vermont journalism, Mm -hmm. um, you know, throwing stones from the outside as the glass houses metaphor is pretty, um, feels very apt 
in that like we have some deeply capitalized capitalist media mm -hmm. operating right now in America, right? Yeah. Um, and so our ability to throw stones effectively when we are for-profit entities um, mm -hmm. against a system that really seems to, I don't think is even broken. I think it, you know, in a lot of ways it was set up to um, marginalize people for profits um, is really complicated. And so that's why I, that's where I wonder sometimes about sort of the ability to find, um, to find justice or like a better balanced kinder capitalism or um, the ability to have a true democracy um, when people don't have the, the time to debate um, or the education um, mm -hmm. that has supported them in developing those skills or any of those things. So, um, but I agree, someone has to, um, if nothing else, alleviate the suffering on the way. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for me, when I think about alleviating the suffering on the way um, and shaping a new system, you know, this pandemic is a portal, all of the hope that I think we talked about so much at the beginning of the pandemic for what could be on the other side. When I see the attention that we're paying to these, um, to hazard pay, to stimulus equity, to workers' rights through reforming the unemployment system or the workers' compensation system. Um, when we look at how we might like reimagine downtown so that public spaces can be safe and healthy, um, when I think about how much our communities are showing up with compassion for teachers um, mm -hmm. after real, like a really dark decade of, you know, hating on teachers, um, that those are the things that sort of give me hope. Mm -hmm. Change is slow. Transfer me. No, actually, I'm going to change. I'm, I'm going to change what I was just about to say about change. Um, Change can happen in an instant. It's transformation that takes longer. Mm -hmm. You know, because change is simple. I mean, Trump's election was change. Yeah. You know, uh, but transformation is takes more time. Mm -hmm. and Absolutely. It's tough to be patient through that time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was... Um after a lifetime of um, being taught a history of great men and grand events and turning points, mm -hmm. um, I've been trying, in order to have sort of the resiliency to be in these moments together, um, really trying to reteach myself a vision of history and living through history that is about individual people and movements and relationships and sort of a slow a slow churn towards something mm -hmm. that Trump would not have been elected. That moment wouldn't have happened if not for, you know, millions of smaller moments leading up to that. And the transformation that's happening because of that one moment um, is shaped by each person participating in it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, remembering that even these like small conversations that we might have about the, you know, tourism industry and what it means for the resiliency of our state and the quality of life of the people living within it. Those might be like really, you know, seeded two years ago, brought to the fore because of the pandemic and then really available to us to think about transformation on the other side because of that. I don't know. Well, yeah, I, I agree. And I think what you're saying keeps bringing me back to one of the things that's so fascinating about this pandemic um, and can, I, I hope it doesn't um, trip up the process of transformation that we might have in the big picture, is once again, we've got these quick emergencies we have to respond to. Um, and in some cases, not always, but in some cases, you know, sometimes with it's an emergency, the ends just have to justify the means. Um, but we have to be so careful if we have these bigger picture, long-term things we want to put in place, how do we also use this time to make sure those big picture, long-term things keep moving forward and this opportunity gets used well? Um, 
I see it in this hazard pay discussion we're having, but I also see it in, um, and I know we haven't brought this up yet, but I see it a little bit in the Global um, Solutions Act, if I have that name right. Global the, Solutions Act. Thank you. You're because welcome. that is actually looking, whether you agree with it or not, um, I feel it's it's actually taking some of what's happening now and looking a little bit long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm I'm glad to see that because while we have the immediate things of how do we make sure people can pay their bills when the economy has been pulled out from under them. And, and the solutions act is a little bit like, okay, what's next? Where's Mm -hmm. the long-term resiliency in this? Yeah. You know, um, and listeners, we had an entire episode about the global warming solutions act. Our guest was Tim Briglin, right? Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. And that was, um, a bunch of months ago and so folks can find been, that if they'd like uh would have been mid-january i believe okay yeah i think it was in the real life yep i mean you and i weren't in the real life together but i think tim and i were in the real life together yeah anyway. you were actually okay. in the the state house having the okay. conversation and i was here in Dummerston. Um, great yeah so anyway if folks want to go find that we got deep into the details um yeah but during the we just um passed the Senate amendments yesterday. That I think that was yesterday. Wednesday? Maybe it was Wednesday. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. All the days. So this week, <laughs> One of those with that, lie at the end um, of it. Veto-proof majority in the House, veto-proof majority in the Senate. Um, the governor is um, imagined to veto it, um, but might not do that with the strong votes that we have. Um, but what is one thing that happened in the debate this week, um, and it was actually Laura Sibilia who said this, Rep. Laura Sibilia from Dover, um, she spoke to exactly what you're saying, Olga, that you know there was some conversation on the floor about like, in these times, can we really afford to be thinking about climate change when we're in the middle of a pandemic? And she said, if we could have foreseen this pandemic, shouldn't we have done everything we could have to prevent it? and to prevent the deaths. Mm-hmm. And you know that's a, certainly a conversation happening at the national level, because it seems that we did foresee the pandemic and we could have done things to prevent it and we didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, which is, yeah, yeah, a little too dark for me right now. Um, I don't want to be blithe about it, but it's the conversation. For it's a frustrating, day. painful yes. conversation. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so that's exactly what we have the chance to do with the Global Warming Solutions Act, to know that things are getting worse mm-hmm. and we need to put in place a real strategic plan to do something about it and hold ourselves accountable to it because it is, it's so hard to keep your eye on the prize. And so for me to have like really strong like strategic planning and accountability mechanisms built into legislation that is like also a cause I care very deeply about is just like the trifecta of of good work. I have to admit, I have I have been feeling or some of the the legislation I've been seeing in a way is getting smarter. Um in in that it is acknowledging that you can't just pull one lever at a time if you want to make broad change. You need to pull a bunch of different that you know it's when you're looking at impacts, it's more of a Venn diagram rather than just these individual little silos. Uh, and that gives me hope for future legislation. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. So I'm looking at the clock. Mm-hmm. And Is it toasting time? We are toasting time, definitely. Oh, so I can't wait to hear your toast. I'm going to pour water okay. from my magical Never Leave My Desk craft. How does it get more water in it then? In the every morning I fill it. Okay. Before I sit down, I clean all the refuse off from the day before and I fill the carafe with water. That is a good routine. Uh-huh. But we digress. Yeah, there's anyway, the toast. Yeah. Um so Labor Day was on Monday. Yes. And schools opened all across the state on Tuesday. 
And for me, that is such a um, powerful juxtaposition. We know that it was very hard for parents to send their kids off. Um, and most parents felt like they absolutely had to if they were gonna continue making a living and having um, everyone come out the other side of that. And I know that a lot of teachers care so, and school staff care so deeply about the youth that they work with and were sort of terrified to go out into the work world in this really high infection environment. And so um, sort of that combination of like the value of labor and um, how our schools fit into that and people feeling like, I think so many people felt so trapped in their choices on those two days. Mm -hmm. And yet like somehow we are still resilient through it and we're like still showing up and loving each other through that. And so that is what I want to test. Um, toast to is our resilience in the face of um, late stage capitalism. You're here. <laughs> to the teachers and the parents and the to, kids. To the teachers and the parents and the willingness to wrestle with tough choices, even when they are hard. Yeah. Oh, and the school bus drivers. Oh, like triple, triple cheers to the school bus drivers. Goodness, yes. Even in non-pandemic times, bus drivers need triple cheers. Yes. Well, Emily, thank you for the great conversation today. And if people want to find more information or if they have questions for you, where can they find, find that info? EmilyKornheiser.org or ekornheiser at gmail.com or ekornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us or any of the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram choices that you would like. I do um, hosted community conversations every Saturday at 10 a.m. Will you be doing it this Saturday, though? Because it's representative. I think I'm going to do a little double Zoom action. Oh, I'm tuning into that. Okay. Don't tell anyone. Um, so anyway, every Saturday at 10 a.m., mostly because I didn't um, realize that town meeting was at the same time and time to cancel. So anyway, every Saturday, 10 a.m., join me for a community conversation via Zoom. You can find the link at any of the previous platforms I mentioned. Would love to talk to you. And this is the Montpelier Happy Hour on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. We air 2 p.m. every Friday, or you can always find us on the Vermontitude SoundCloud page, the Vermontitude Facebook page, and YouTube and BCTV. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care.